ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Weenie and the Butt Music Hour with your host, Nick Munez here. We've got the April edition of Nick's Nonfiction, musically themed, Ozzy Osbourne, I Am Ozzy. It's going to be a fun one today. Before you think I'm choosing favorites or going emo for the guy, I've read a bunch of these rock and roll biographies, and all the bands look up to Ozzy. They call him the rock father. Pretty sick, not to mention he spent three decades on LSD. Also, we're doing the hang at the end of the show. Skip forward if you just want to chill. Straight from the horse's mouth. I took lethal combinations of booze and drugs for 30 fucking years. I survived a direct hit by a plane, suicidal overdoses, STDs. I've been accused of attempted murder. Then I almost died while riding over a bump on a quad bike. At two fucking miles per hour. I used to watch one of two things on television. My sisters would wrestle the remote at him. Please change the channel. It was the Osbournes and Viva La Bam. I'm gonna give you what you need. You're gonna learn about some of the misconceptions here. They said crazy things about me over the years. I mean, okay, he bit the head off a bat, yes. He bit the head off a dove, yes. But then you hear things like Ozzy went to the show last night but wouldn't perform until he killed 15 puppies. Now me, kill 15 puppies? I love puppies. I've gotten 18 of the fucking things at home. I've killed a few cows in my times, mind you, the chickens that I shot in the yard. But puppies? <laughs> Ozzy calling out the commenters today? Bro, I'm not even joking. I used to watch this on repeat. Sean, you need to get me my guitar. I've been working on it. He's a living legend. The reason I like Black Sabbath, they go deep, bro. I want my comedians mentally unhinged. I want my metal deep in the rabbit hole of truth. The patrons know my favorite song. Mr. Crowley. It's symbolic, of course. Quote, a lot of it ain't gonna be pretty. I've done some bad things in my time. I've always been drawn to the dark side. But I ain't the devil. I'm just John Osborne, a working class kid from Aston who quit his job in the factory and went looking for a good time. Where did Ozzy's crazy train get its power? Loco motion. What do you call a skydiving metalhead? Ozzy airborne. <laughs> Liberace arrives at the pearly gates. St. Peter says, I think we might have a problem here. Our records indicate that you once bit the head off of a live parakeet at one of your concerts. Liberace responds, No, that would have been Ozzy Osbourne. Now I might have had a cockatoo. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back after a couple musical memes. About the author, this is repetitive. It's an autobiography. Redundant, some may call it. Gonna try to mix academia and music today. Reggae, ska, and rockcore. Whatever you're into, there's a little bit for everybody. Patreon.com slash the niche. Valuable things over there. And Harry Schwann on Instagram. Free memes. What kind of shampoo did Ozzy Osbourne get his kids? No more tears. <laughs> what comes after Black Friday? Black Sabbath. <laughs> We're doing the hang at the end. So if you don't like fast niche, skip. Let's get this started after a couple memes. I am Ozzy, chapter one, black story. Get it? Quote, I was the fourth child in my family and the first boy. My three older sisters were Jean, Iris, and Jillian. I didn't have any fun in Aston, and there were only gray skies and corner pubs. I was a very nervous kid. 
I was terrified most of the time. I was terrified of impending doom. I convinced myself that if I stepped on cracks in the pavement while running home, my mother would die. Paul Stanley wrote the same thing in his book, Rock Stars. They have the VMAT2 gene. That's what the academics say your DNA makes you superstitious. And some things can turn off that gene in injections. Or maybe... These people are just irresponsible risk-takers, or science, whatever you want. Quote, My father was a good man, and he was strict, but never beat me or locked me in the coal house. He would always give his seat up on the bus for a woman or help an old lady across the road. I think this guy kind of had it easy compared to Nikki Six. He cut a hole in his arm so that his mom wouldn't get a new boyfriend. His dad was like this average Englishman. Sure, if the pot pie was a little cold, his mom got a smack in. Not that bad. Quote, I had an incredible imagination. I spent years wondering what beer must be like until I finally drank some and thought, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> I didn't think it was possible for me to make any more money than by working in a factory or robbing a bank. I was a kid trying to fit in with the local gangs. He says he always felt like a loser in school because he was easily distracted and he couldn't read. And then it's not until his 30s that he's realized he was dyslexic the whole time. A hunter in a farmer's world. Did you hear about the gay dyslexic guy? He's still in Dan Isle. <laughs> Ozzy was bullied a lot at school as a kid. He's going, rather than being emo, he started befriending bigger kids than him. One of which, Tommy Ayami. For those who know the story, this kid can play a pretty mean guitar. What John and Tommy bonded over was both how poor they were. Osborne, he didn't even see the ocean until he was 20. <laughs> his mom never bought him a new pair of underwear. He said one time he had to sell his mom's suit to pay off a debt to a local gangster. Why is his mom wearing suits? Quote, I was 15 when I left school. I had two career choices, manual labor or manual labor. I chose plumbing because at least it was a trade. I didn't last a week. It wasn't the cold that did me in, though. I got fired for scrumping apples during my lunch break. My parents were extremely disappointed when they found out I had been fired for my job. They had uh, got me another job at a car horn tune factory. I tried to emigrate to Australia, but I couldn't afford the 10-pound fare. I tried to join the army, but they wouldn't have me. So I took a job in the factory. You think he's a psycho ripe for the picking. If you know he goes on to kill animals, they could have bred him into a super soldier. He's got somewhat of a work ethic, but I'm wondering where's the vision, man? Quote, I wanted to start a band ever since. He kind of sounds like Jack Sparrow in my interpretation. <laughs> I had wanted to start a band ever since I sang Living Doll at my family's shindig. I was always looking for an adventure and anything that didn't involve working in a factory. The Beatles happened. In 1964, something unexpected happened to me. I got a job I enjoyed. I was a natural at killing animals. I enjoyed the slaughterhouse and eventually was promoted to cow killer. I grew to like the slaughterhouse and the smell became normal to me. I loved my job at the slaughterhouse. The guys I worked with were pretty crazy and always up for a laugh. I specialized in tripe for a while. A little bit tripe. <laughs> that means intestines. I even had a stint killing pigs. I enjoyed my job. He says this three times. He enjoyed it despite the fact that he had to be cruel to animals. <laughs> He's not a great author. 
he's got some good stories. We're not even in the rock phase yet. But uh, society thinks they won. We turned this crazy kid into a good little factory member. The story goes on. I became John the burglar to escape the factory job. I was sent to Winston Green Prison, where I was terrified of being sexually assaulted. I spent the rest of the week begging for a pair of scissors so I could look less like a girl. <laughs> I was given three months in prison, but because of my work in the kitchen and my help with Bradley, they were going to let me out in six weeks. I told Tommy that I'd been in prison for four weeks, and he told me he'd been in prison for years. I had done time, but it was part of my life. I didn't try to pretend it never happened like some people do. I was a free man, and I'd survived prison without being arse-raped or beaten to a pulp. Yet I felt so fucking sad. It was the turning point in my life as John Michael Osborne, ex-car horn tuner. He's going like everything is irritating him at this time. He's living with his parents. He's listening to hippie music on the radio. The fact that people are trying to use him as a cautionary tale in town just because they don't match his perception of success... Yay, true. John is angry. He's sick and tired of being sick and tired. What are you going to do? He starts posting flyers outside of a Ringway music shop, Band Members Wanted. I believe my fellow academics called this the all-is-lost moment. You can give up or you can double down again. I was 20 now and had given up all hope on being a singer. I'd convinced myself that there was no point in even trying because I was just going to fail like I had at school. Tommy sees the uh, band poster at this point. They meet in his van to discuss what both of them had been dreaming for for the past five years. But when I'd met him, he told me his education mainly involved learning how to use an electric welder. Tommy had an accident that destroyed the tips of his fingers on his right hand, which were the fretboard fingers for his guitar. He had to learn how to play the guitar from scratch even though he had no feeling in two of his fingers. I gave Tommy a chance and we spent the rest of the night sitting in the back of the van smoking cigarettes telling stories about prison and drug busts. They figure out the next move. We're going to try to rope some guys into it. The name of the band was decided by a vote. We wanted to have a lot of instruments in the band like a saxophonist and a bottleneck guitarist. We also wanted to copy the lineup of Fleetwood Mac whose second album, Mr. Wonderful, had just come up and blown us all away. Alright, you're starting to sound like fish. You're going to play a vacuum cleaner and a rubber band. <laughs> they named themselves a Rare Breed. February 2nd, 1966. The band premieres at Fort Worth's Palace Theater. The gig itself was amazing. Apart from almost crapping my pants with stage fright, the trouble began afterwards when I had to fight off the giant redhead who wanted to attack me because of his girlfriend. I think he get laid on stage. It's mostly fighting off jealous dudes. <laughs> Tony left the band in December of 1968. Without him, the band had nothing to do but sit around and drink tea. The rest of the members gave up their day jobs, and none of them had any money. It's another dope as hell point. These other band members hadn't hit rock bottom yet, so Ozzy and Tommy, who had both been to jail, are like, you have pure, innocent little souls, and you're trying to shout at the devil here? I got Lilith sucking me off, and Satan is watching me. I'm cucking out the devil. <laughs> Lilith, did you know, is Satan's girlfriend. That is from the Ancient Almanac. Osborne, he's keeping track with the band. Uh, nothing happens till 1968. 
and they're doing so bad that in 1969 he starts riding the trash truck. This is like um, I have no shame. Anthony Crawford, Sammy Anzer, they're in the Denver scene. I was rising with these guys. We were in the trenches every night. They'd been at it five years longer than me, so both of them went to new faces last year. Both of them back in the open mic circuit. Ooh, riding the trash truck. <laughs> Ozzy's going to try to pull the queen card here. If you want a career longer than three years in entertainment, you got to go for the gold. And Ozzy knows you only got one shot at it, so he starts trying to book a European tour. And it kind of reminds me of Kiss at this point in the book, like the industry is shutting them out. So what Kiss did was start renting out theaters in New York City. And then the industry was like, we can't let other band members see this as an option. And then they bought them out. My point, don't sit on the egg. And I don't have an egg right now. I know you guys look at me. Why aren't you full sending open mics? <laughs> That's a good way to wind up exactly where you started. It's all about the setup. You ever hear about the Brendan Schwab when he went to the Comedy Works <laughs> before he knew Joe Rogan? It's not a pretty story. Jethro Tull implodes. That was Tommy's band in the meantime. And I'm not saying I know. <laughs> I, I don't give a fuck. I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody out here anymore. He's got the skill. He needs to lead a band to the fucking top here. He gets uh, Tommy's band together in 1969. They change their name to Black Sabbath. Quote, Hamburg, Germany. In 1969, we were doing shows there as a part of the tour with Black Sabbath. It was a lot of fun, but it was grueling. The Star Club was a great training ground for us. We learned how to play the new song we had written, like The Wizard, NIB, War Pigs, Rat Salad. We also learned how to have a good time and how to stay out of trouble. We had a meeting with Jim Simpson to tell him about our change of name to Black Sabbath. He didn't seem too keen, but we couldn't argue with the results. Gus Dudgeon, who had worked with Eric Clapton and the Moody Blues, produced us. In January 1970, Black Sabbath got a record deal. For a few months, Joe Simpson had been shopping on them, invited all these bigwigs from London to come to our gigs. But no one was interested. Then one night, a guy from Phillips drove up to Birmingham to see us play and decided to take a bet on us. Chapter 2 Signed. Quote, I've always had a problem with the term heavy, heavy metal. To me, it doesn't mean anything musically. It was just a blues band that had decided to write some scary music. The press latched onto the term heavy metal after the song Black Sabbath. The Beatles were one of the last British bands to do a residency at the Star Club in Hamburg, Germany. 1969, we were doing shows there as a part of our tour with Black Sabbath. It was a lot of fun, but it was grueling. Didn't you just say that? Yeah. Ozzy hears himself on Radio 1 for the first time. His mom's going, what is that noise? Turn that down. <laughs> Quote, the critics hated Black Sabbath, but I loved it. I felt I had just been born. The only bad review of Black Sabbath was written by Lester Bangs at Rolling Stones, who said they were just like cream, but worse. The first album we released, Black Sabbath, went straight to number 8 in Britain, number 23 in America, but my father wasn't impressed as he thought the cover was upside down. He didn't get it at all. I was finally doing something I was good at that I enjoyed. I wanted my old man to be proud of me, but he was too busy working to be. Think about that rock doc I watched about the drummer of Cream. The guy is insane. He lives in South Africa, shoots at people that comes on his property. Another big break for Black Sabbath, Don Arden. 
He was also in the Kiss book. They called him Mr. Big. Mr. Big wants a piece of Black Sabbath. <laughs> this guy, they would say Mr. Big Don Arden, he only paid the bands out in cash through this delivery service in brown paper bags. This is a pretty underground industry. September 1970. I regret not giving money to my parents. I knew they would have liked me to, but I didn't want to. I was young, loaded most of the time, and my ego was already ruling the world. I never got any good-looking women after the success of our first album. The only groupies that came to our gigs were two-baggers, and most of them I was lucky. <laughs> he says he was lucky enough to get with them. A two-bagger? That's my new word. <laughs> he writes paranoid at this time. And uh, it goes to top of the pops in the U.S. Top 40. He had a funny quote. I love America. You could buy 10 or 20 slices of pizza a day. John, you can buy as much fucking pizza as you want in America. Quote. I loved traveling with Bill. We often spent time together in the back of our rented GMC mobile home drinking and taking drugs. They're on the U.S. tour. We visited many states and I learned about Bill far away from home. We missed England, especially when we started talking about how excited we were to go to the pub and tell everyone about America. It's a big theme. They're just small town British kids. The best way to take your mind off the home situation was to prank Americans who worked at hotels. <laughs> One of us would sneak off to the front desk and get them to page Mr. Harry Bullocks. Is there a Harry Bullocks around? <laughs> We were on the road nonstop for two years after our first American tour. We spent so much time in the air that we ended up being on the first named term with the Pan Am flight attendants. He had this story where on one of the flights home to England, he was carrying four grams of coke in his sock. So he was worried about taking it through customs and he just gave it to the stewardess. He said she cleared the entire bag in one shift. <laughs> Hi, can I get you a drink? Would you like a snack, sir? <laughs> four grams deep. Oh, are they sharing it with the pilots? He says he's taking it easy back in England. I like these hotel stories. You ever hear the one where he tried to paint a hotel room with the blood of a dismembered shark? Like he started it, we don't know how much of it is true. <laughs> Bill Ward, the drummer, he said they they were the closest, so they were pranking everybody together. When they were on stage, Ozzy would pour vodka like an entire handle on him while he was drumming, and then he would try to throw matches at him from the front of the stage. <laughs> you know this one. He almost got arrested in Texas for pissing on the Alamo. I think I've crunched the data on this. British people will pee anywhere. He also peed on a cop car once. I don't know. If you're not morally offended yet, Ozzy was the first person ever to be thrown out of Dachau. How? <laughs> they didn't even have Pokemon Go. I'm trying to catch a Snorlax in the gas chamber. Damn. <laughs> he had a story about a bunch of Satanists crashing his hotel room after a gig. He's like, guys, it's a bit. I don't want to sacrifice a lamb with you. So he blew out their candles and then sung happy birthday to all the fucking Satanists in the lobby of a hotel room. Ozzy said he didn't remember this one. Bill had to tell him the next morning. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, he got so drunk and coked up, he surfed the aerial tram. What? 
Ozzy Osbourne invented subway surfers. <laughs> Naked on top of a train. <laughs> Crazy train. Quote, when the huge TV set hit the ground, it exploded like a nuclear bomb. The hotel tried to charge $38,000 for destruction of property. <laughs> Moving along. He meets a girl named Thelma. They have a baby. During the baptism, Ozzy spiked the cake with drugs. So the priest apparently had a slice of the cake and then it went unconscious. <laughs> this was a thing. Ozzy was known for, uh, I think he called them doom dots. Pretty sick. It was gel LSD tabs that he just drugged everybody with. Doom dots. Quote, Black Sabbath's last great album, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, was released in 1974. It was a stoner album with a balanced mix of heavy and experimental music that I loved. In the mid-70s, Black Sabbath changed with the arrival of Ozzy Osbourne. I and Bill had drifted apart. I was the noisy party animal who had always been having women in my room and Bill just wanted to sleep. The band had been stitched up by the management, and we had no control over the money or affairs. Thelma and I had our second child, Luis, while I was recording with Sabbath in Miami. While our albums were becoming more expensive to produce, our sales were falling. We didn't have a manager, and Bill was handling the phones. We didn't know who we were anymore. We started to lose interest in the band, and I was thinking about having a solo career. I had even had a t-shirt made with the Blizzard of Oz on it. Meanwhile, in the studio, Tommy was always saying, We have to sound like Foreigner or Queen. I had enough with the band. I had walked out on rehearsal one day and didn't come back. I was exhausted from touring the world nonstop for six years, and I was out of my mind on booze and drugs. That's where they are. Ending the chapter. The first thing I did after the Black Sabbath album bombed in America was hire Don Arden as my manager. Mr. Big! The best thing about being managed by Don was getting to see his daughter, Sharon, on a regular basis. I began falling in love with her from a distance. Nothing happened between us for a long time. I was fired from Black Sabbath in 79. I had taken it very badly. It gave me the push I needed to succeed. Chapter 3, Solo. This is Randy Rhodes talking, his new guitarist. I, I thought of a rock name the other day. Ronnie Cox. That's going to be my singer name. <laughs> Randy says, I was very excited to be playing with Ozzy, as he was my childhood hero. When the album came out in Britain in September 1980, it went to number seven on the album charts. When it came out in America six months later, it peaked at number 21 and eventually sold four million copies. Ozzy, he says, I was drunk, and so was Sharon. We had a laugh ripping off our clothes and jumping into the bath with each other. I fell for Sharon so much and she fell for me as well. He said in the 80s, you couldn't tell who was in the band and who was in the audience. It's an all-out drag show. This must have been a problem in the 1970s. Everybody had long hair. You didn't know who to approach from behind. <laughs> I don't know. The only politics I'm into anymore is hair. Somehow the media usurped the relationship between long hair and rebellion to now people just see long hair and they think homeless. Here's a funny concern of Osborne. It's called blowback. It's the thing you can get from a chick when they give you a hand job. They're wanking you off and then just as you're about to blow your wad, they put their thumb over the end of your knob and the sperm flies back down your tubes and knocks out your spinal column. No, is it real? 
blowback if you put your thumb and you try to pop it like one of those M&M containers. Bro, I thought your cum would just fly out of your dick like a garden hose. Maybe that's how paraplegics happen. Blowback? <laughs> Someone's got to try this while wanking off tonight for science. Ozzy's still seeing Thelma behind her husband's back and behind Sharon's back. They have a major break at this time with CBS Records. I was having the best nights of my life with Sharon. I was trying to fix things with Thelma. But if you're a chronic alcoholic, Barbados isn't the place to go. I was legless by 6 in the morning. While in Barbados, Ozzy hires a personal dwarf. His name was John Allen. 310 joins the party. The idea for the midget execution came to me in Barbados. Every night on the tour, halfway through Goodbye to Romance, we'd stage the execution of a midget. I'd shout, hang the bastard, and a little guy would be hoisted up with a fake noose around his neck. John Allen was a funny man, and he had a completely normal-sized head. <laughs> when he got loaded, he would lose his balance and fall down. Not a long fall. <laughs> it's just like an 80s freak show at this point, cross-dressing, hanging small people. The Diary of a Madman tore its life. The final trick was the catapult, which was activated by stomping on a pedal. When I pressed the button, however, the elastic had gone limp. So instead of a massive payload of pig's bullocks and cow entrails flying into the audience, it smacked me in the back of the head. <laughs> you heard about this. He would throw raw meat at his audience. January 20th, 1982. The band played the Veterans Auditorium in Des Moines, Iowa. The gig was going great until a bat was thrown onto the stage. The crowd went crazy, and the press went nuts. And you know what happens next. Ozzy Osbourne picks up the bat, makes bat soup with it, and that's where coronavirus comes from. <laughs> Quote, I asked Sharon to marry me, and she said yes. We have more engagements than most people have wedding guests. After the first one, it was usually Sharon who called them off. I proposed to her 17 times in the end. I got married in Hawaii on the way to a gig in Japan. My mother and sister came, as did Don Arden, who wanted Sharon to sign some paperwork. <laughs> they buy a house outside of London. Sharon spends the whole time in the city having tea with friends, so Ozzy decides to let his ex-wife raise the kids. He's got important business to take care of. In the new house... He spends time shaving off the eyebrows of the help that fall asleep. <laughs> Quote, I had started trying to sneak alcohol into the house. One time, I got a big four-gallon bottle of vodka, but I couldn't find a place to hide it. I ran around the house looking for a place to hide it. Then it came to me, the oven. Sharon had never cooked a meal in her life. She wouldn't be looking there. <laughs> How do you get four gallons of vodka? <laughs> Amy was born on September 2nd, 1983. She was a guiding light for us, and we were happy. But just as things were starting to feel good about life again, we had to go on the road to promote the Bark at the Moon album. Chapter 4, Ozify. Randy Rhodes dies in a plane crash before the tour. <laughs> Ozzy specifically picked this pilot because the guy had been in near-fatal crashes. <laughs> so did Ozzy indirectly kill him? He's saying that he had a bunch of near-death experiences during the moon tour. I had to out-crazy the band members of Motley Crue, otherwise I wasn't doing my job properly. 
I was out of it the whole time. We learned this in the book last year. He snorted a line of fire ants. I was so loaded that I didn't feel anything. Yeah, cheers. Then I'd get up and have another can of Guinness. The Bark of the Moon tour was the final tour with Motley Crue. I had started to fight with Sharon, and we had stopped staying in the cheap motels. I would often get more tattoos when I was drunk, which drove Sharon crazy. Sharon would always find ways to retaliate when I did something crazy. On the Moon tour, he set people's chickens on fire. And then when he would go home in between the dates, he would spend time shooting stray cats with his shotgun. Hmm. <laughs> and then there's a big story you've probably heard. He would like let chickens loose inside of his mansion and then hunt them inside of his house. Maybe that's why Sharon isn't coming home. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this was the time when he was on like 20 Vicodin a day as well. But that could be the entire time. Quote, I had become a full-blown practicing alcoholic. I couldn't pretend any longer that I was just having fun or that boozing was something everyone did when they got a bit of money. I had a disease, and it was killing me. I was stressed out about doing Live Aid. I hadn't talked to Tommy for years, so it wasn't an exactly comfortable situation. The organizers put us between Billy Ocean and the Four Tops at 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, this is not the fun time anymore. It's starting to get into the sad part. But we're talking about Live Aid, so that's fun. Meadowlands, New Jersey is like 20 miles from where I was born. If you're going to go back in time to a concert, that might be the one. The Beatles were there. And then, you know, Queen and everybody and all that shit. I'm thinking about it looked like the Beatles were at the Meadowlands last year when Mr. Beast opened his store. And like, we're living through a very gay Beatles mania right now. This guy did a 10,000 person meet and greet. And then they sold the most hamburgers anybody ever did in a day. Beast Burgers. Beast Mania. <laughs> like, this documentary, I think it's Colin and Samir on YouTube. Just watch that one. It's going to make my point that's hyper cringe, even cringier. There's no talent left. It's all hype at this point. And that's kind of what Ozzy's doing with his Hang the Midget tour. Ozzy's getting protested by priests and nuns. Mr. Beast is curing the blind. Did you guys see that one? <laughs> yeah, let's forget the researchers who put 40 years into the field of ocular vision. And let's give the credit to the kid who's spending Google's money. <laughs> Mr. Beast cured the blind. Uh, that fucking, and for people who like Mr. Beast, the National Guard had to come up and end the meet and greet. Like, mall security wasn't enough. So I'm saying there's a little bit of a rock and roll in there. Why does people just hate everybody with long hair? So Ozzy starts talking to a doctor about his drinking. Very fun stuff. <laughs> Here's a better quote. The media was obsessed with the idea that there was a subliminal message in Suicide Solution for a long time. I began putting subliminal messages in my songs to promote the idea. The saddest part about that period was the old bandmates Bob Daisley and Lee Karaslak decided to sue me. They claimed that we owed them money for Blizzard of Oz, Diary of a Madman, so they sued us. And this is a really big point in the book. He keeps going, the drugs and the hangovers. Man, they're not as bad as your brother's turning on you. I had turned to sedatives, which I had got from doctors on the road. Whenever I had overdosed, I would just blame it on my dyslexia. He talked to a doctor that was like, the more you drink, 
the quicker your brain is going into blackout mode nowadays. He goes, I thought it was just bullshit to frighten me. <laughs> it's true. In my vodka years, you just start blacking out sooner through the night. <laughs> he said, I drove all the way down to the end of Alcoholic Avenue. And then he tried to quit cold turkey, which is even more dangerous. Quote, what's my name? I couldn't answer because I felt like I was underwater. Then Sharon was going, how many fingers am I holding up? How many fingers, Ozzy? But I couldn't count. I was charged with attempted murder against my wife. Survived a strangulation attempt. <laughs> While he was going through the DTs, this is when the accusation of strangling. Which I don't fucking know. I'm sure there's a million conspiracy books written about that in itself. Rock conspiracies kind of rule. I'm more into the Laurel Canyon connections. But maybe Ozzy strangled his wife. I'm thinking of good Charlotte now. Well, did you know when you're famous you could kill your wife? There's no such thing as 25 to life. As long as you got the cash to pay for Cochran. Anti-rock the song. <laughs> Strangling your wife? That's some rock and roll shit. Chapter 5. Osmosis. Quote, I was so sick I tried to kill myself a few times to get out of gigs. I was terrified that Sharon would leave me, but as much as I wanted everything to be normal and right, I was terribly sick. In 1992, I went on tour to promote No More Tears. I was done. I'd been on the road for 25 years, and I was like a mouse on a wheel. Album tour, album tour, album tour. I didn't need the dough. He's thinking about his dad's retirement. He spent the first six months tending a garden and then committed himself to hospice. So he's like, you got to stay busy, but not too busy. Sharon's got this bright idea of managing all the misfit bands underneath them. And this kind of goes on for five years. He does his balanced workload. Then his mom dies. The music era is officially over for Ozzy. Quote, we first allowed TV cameras into our house in 1997, the year Black Sabbath got back together. I was off the booze, but still scamming as many pills as I could from doctors. <laughs> the Osbournes was a hit show in America, and it changed my life. It was as big as it gets, fame-wise. I never knew the power of my telly until I saw the show The Osbournes was compared to Bill Cosby's show. He got offended by it. <laughs> Bill Cosby got offended. But the point of The Osbournes was to be real. <laughs> By 2002, it seemed like the Osbournes was the biggest thing on the planet, and the stress of it was killing me. I was taking an unbelievable quantity of drugs, and none of them seemed to be helping. For I was six years old watching Ozzy smuggling pills, apparently. <laughs> he said he had the permanent shakes. He was scared to get tested because it might be Parkinson's, but he wound up getting tested, and the doctors tell him it's because his body is still recovering from 25 years on the road. It's a pretty long hangover. <laughs> He keeps getting tested and it winds up being a genetic disease. And so Sharon's dad stops talking to her at this point. He's like, you're putting us old money on reality TV? Get the fuck out of here. Mr. Big, he's going, tell the grandkids that I died in a war. <laughs> That's fucking savage. <laughs> Anybody who's watched the Osbournes know what comes next. I was in a coma for two weeks, and when I woke up, I had no memory of the crash in the hours I followed. He got in the ATV accident, and he ran over himself. The last thing I remember is pulling on a doctor's sleeve and whispering in his ear, Don't fuck up my tattoo. I was badly injured. 
I had fractured eight of my ribs and punctured my lungs, which was why they were filling up with blood. The doctors put me into a chemical coma, and after eight days I began to wake up. I had the most insane dream. I was in Montmuthshire, where we used to rehearse with Black Sabbath and bands. It was raining, and Sharon was having a party. Sharon winds up leaving the show after season four. They pivot into trying to make her a TV star. This is kind of the end of the story. The house got broken into. The burglars didn't find the uh, drug stash. And this is the Bam Margera. He took over the degenerate baton. I think like up until 2015 in Westchester, you could go to Bam Margera's party house. Like where they fucking filmed the TV show. It turned into scene raves every night. And so he's saying for the amount that I partied, I think I equalized better, osmosified better than most of the rock stars. If you look at Vince Neil right now, not doing good. I think the craziest part of the book was when he said that the worst part isn't the hangover, the highest highs, the lowest lows. It's when your buddies sell you out for a little money. One more quote. You'll learn who your friends are when the shit hits the fan. I used to get upset by people not understanding me, but I've made a career out of it now. Hating people isn't a productive way of living, so what's the point in hating everyone? There's enough hate in the world as it is without me adding to it. Damn, Mr. Heavy Metal is peace, love, and rock and roll. There it is. I am Ozzy. Pretty fun. Maybe we slip in a musical edition around the Octubre or something. Because these are fun. Send in your requests if you do know of a Dank Band biography. Love it. It's a fun time of the year. The snow is melting. Next week on the show, we've got a mystery edition. Get your free memes over on Harry Schwant. Support the program. Patreon.com slash the niche. There's a tier for everybody. Let's get a random soundboard effect to end it. Nick Muniz signing off. We'll be right back with the bonus. Allahu Akbar. Alrighty, friends. Welcome back. What you hear now is me hitting the G-pen. Oh, yeah. What this part of the show is for, I'm going to restate the mission statement. This is a complete waste of time. <laughs> oh my god! He said it. You're not supposed to say it out loud. We get the information out of the way, and now I have to feel like I'm bombing for 15 minutes. You want me to bring someone to the back of the studio against their will? <laughs> Force a mic into their mouth? Music. That was the theme of the day. Let's see what we got playing. Woo! Okay, so they're listening to me. What the f- I just hit shuffle on my iPhone. And Jack the Stripper comes up. That's Black Sabbath. 
you're fucking listening to me and I know it. <laughs> I do 15 minutes on that. You know what that sound bite reminds me of? It was a, a day after middle school. Me and my buddies, Nevin Dill, we go to the bowling alley. This is a real story. <laughs> Remember the soundboard. Keep it in your mind. Oh boy, cheese. We're doing some bowling. I roll a perfect 300 sanctioned by the PG. <laughs> Nah, so we go into the bar part of the bowling alley. We're 12 years old, so we get personal pan pizzas. We're eating the pizza, and we're seeing how long we could string the cheese, you know, as a 12-year-old at a bowling alley would do. My buddy Nev, he starts pulling the cheese, like, two feet long. And I'm like, bro, you're going to choke. And he starts swallowing it, and he turns into the clown, going, oh, oh, you know, pulling ribbons out of your mouth, and he's pulling three feet of cheese out of his mouth. And we're like, what the f An entire snake of cheese. He just puts it on the middle of the table. Go about, eat the rest of our pizza. With this thing fucking staring at us. We didn't have much of an attention span. So halfway through our meal, I go, oh boy, cheese! And I reach and I pull this piece of cheese off the middle of the table. And I start ingesting his throat cheese. <laughs> okay. The next 15 minutes is justified. I just did a stage bit for you. I've eaten throat cheese before. Lemon! <laughs> throat cheese. Comedy. So, I did talk about the industry a little bit today. The Indus. Yeah, I don't want to fucking... This show is about... The lowest brow of comedy. <laughs> I could listen to Mr. Krabs skitter away for an hour. That's a funny noise. I perform the highest brow. You read a fucking Lenny Bruce book? Comedy. You're supposed to find the most obscure thing in the world and try to make it funny. Or we could talk about the news again. Again, on the 20th podcast of this week, the news. It's the culture, man. If you talk about the culture, then they're winning. Turn me off and listen to Black Sabbath now. <laughs> So, well, well, well. <laughs> Don't worry, I feel the bomb. I feel it in my bones. Is this what you want? <laughs> so, music. What do you say? We shuffle this one more time to see what they fucking think I want to hear. One of my SoundCloud beats. I hope you like how they, I have been adding a smoke sesh in between the hang and the fucking video. <laughs> SoundCloud beats, that's music. Well, next up they got some Passion Pit.
Remember the first time you heard some fucking passion pit man? That's like on that Kid Cuddy stoner level when you're 13 years old. Someone shoves a joint in your face and then they play this. Let's go. <laughs> it's time for another rip. Ronnie Cox. Someone's got to have used that name before. I got a ton of those fake names, but I use them in knock-knock jokes on stage, so I'm not going to use them here. <laughs> My ass. Wasn't a Doom Dots. That was very funny in today's show. <coughs> <coughs> oh, it's stoner time. <coughs> <coughs> Let's go. I'm Bowser. I'm breathing fire. High Times Magazine strain of the year. It was Gorilla Breath last year. <coughs> I got Gorilla Breath. High Times, man. Dude, if you like smoke enough of enough to reefer, I feel like you could like you just like see everything, man. <laughs> High times. Get a job there. Zach Mass is huge in Denver. But he's been here fucking longer than some of these other kids. Zach Mass, he works at a dispensary, so he's just weed humor 24-7. When's the next Cheech and Chong? Who's going to write that shit? Anywho. let us go! Increíble. Hi, Chihuahua. I'm a Mexican. I'm a Mexican American. I need more guacamole. Guacamole. What would you do if you were approached on a busy street by a well dressed stranger who said he'd lost his wallet? and asked apologetically if you could give him $10 for a train ticket. Beat it, guy! You have those people outside of your, um, grocery stores. Man, I just need a couple bucks to catch the next bus. I know you're about to buy vodka. You're here every day. And so then supermarkets started hiring uh, security to get rid of a motherfucker. In Boulder, there's always chicks on roller skates outside of grocery stores trying to get you to sign some sort of a petition. Not today, sweetie. I've got books to read. <laughs> Passion Pit. They remind me of that band Starfucker. S-T-R-F-K-O-R. You know who's doing good on music right now? Australia. Everybody knows Tame Impala. That's just going to be the first. King Gizzard is blowing up. You know, King Gizzard, they put a fucking album out every week. They're so scared of losing their fans. 
And then there's fucking Tame Impala who waits four years to put out an album, and in the meantime, he puts out a song named Patience. Just fucking with his fan base. Have some patience. King Gizzard is wild. Who else do they have? Pond, of course. Justice goes hard. Australia is woke. If you know what I mean. I don't even know what I mean, so... So, well, well, well. That was terrible. I think gasolina. That'll stand the test of time. Oh, but I gasolina. That me mas gasolina. <laughs> the music edition. Would you be willing to become physically ugly? If it meant you could live for a hundred more years at your current physical age. That's the hardest question you'll ever ponder. I'm already ugly, so I get a hundred more years. (laughs) You work somewhere where you wear a mask all the time? That was a very hurtful question. Shuffle music, save us. What's up, guys? It's Quandale Dingle here. <laughs> I have been arrested for multiple crimes, <laughs> including battery on a police officer, what? grand theft, declaring war on Italy, and public indecency. <laughs> I will be escaping prison on March 28th. After that, I will take over the world. <laughs> Greetings, Quandale Dingle here. <laughs> My cousin Henry Bert. Henry Bertholomew Dingle. I could listen to that all day. Dolomew Dinglenut got arrested for putting a TNT in a daycare center. I put a camera in Joe Biden's bathroom and watched him take a poop. My Asian brother, Quan Ling Ling Dingle, put illegal substances in my ramen and I died. Hey, fellas, it's Quan Dale Dingle here. I put perks in Vladimir Putin's drink and he went to bed for a really long time. I trapped my autistic... So the nuke. <laughs> the nuke. I don't want to think about that. Son's hand in an air fryer. My butt during Ramadan. What do we got? Another five nine. What's that other music documentary I watched? It's about Bob Marley's beatmaker. The Punisher. He's got a cool nickname, and that's what it's called. Something like that. The Descender. Fuck, what's it called? Maybe that's the only person I'm jealous of. I When I was in college, I tried to start making beats in the basement of Morris Library. Benny Banassi, the kid used to party at University of Delaware. You've heard a million of his songs. I can't get no Saturday's fat. You got to come up with 16 bars and you have a fucking song. <laughs> yeah, this kid fucking threw house down at Delaware. Benny B. And that concludes my jealousy. (laughs) That's how we'll end it. I'm not trying to chase the fucking carrot on the stick. That's the difference between the industry. I'm already on the fucking trash truck. 
doing doom dots. You got me fucked up if you think I'm going to start chasing something that doesn't exist. <laughs> we having fun out here in the extra 15 minute segment. <laughs> That's my internal monologue. Fighting to get out. I don't even want to be high right now. <laughs> okay, I pull up. I have one more question. Something I've been pondering. At a meal, some people you know start belittling a common acquaintance. Would you stand up for the person if you felt the criticisms were justified? Mm. Uh, talking behind a motherfucker's back. That's how you get claps on. Eric clapped, son. <laughs> Eric, you gonna get claps on. Was that the bite of 87? I'm about to show this motherfucker the bullet of 45. <laughs> Well, well, well. It seems we've done it once again, ladies and gentlemen. We've done it. Tactical nuke incoming! It's been fun. Definitely listen to some Black Sabbath later. Damn. You see, they're not all heavy metal. They got range due to Laguna Sunrise. Black Sabbath has been a tribute to the old heads today. Thank you for uh, protesting in your age. And uh, that's my cue. They're giving me the light. You hear it? <laughs> That's Ozzy Osbourne shooting cats with a shotgun. Let's go. Full circle. Your next bonus segment will be in exactly one month when we do our May-themed edition, usually philosophy that time of year. I fuck with the knickers. Thank you guys for being here. I do enjoy this for some reason, somehow. <laughs> Talk to you all soon. Peace!